met this six-year-old child with this blank, pale, emotionless face. The blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Uh, welcome to another episode of Subconscious Realms. I'm your host, General Lee, and we have my calls for tonight in attendance. Uh, Sir Raven Kiefer, now then, Raven. Um, ah. And for tonight, you okay, mate? And for tonight, we are joined by oh, the phenomenal Sir Gary Wayne. Um, Gary, long time no speak. Oh, it's it's been a few months, and glad to be back uh, to yeah, guest on your show. Thanks, and mate. yes, thanks, uh, mate. Thank you. <laughs> um, I feel like a little as soon as you hear your voice. I feel like a little kid. <laughs> no, it's just gonna be. It's just gonna get weird and wild, and I love it, mate. I love it. Um, so um, yeah, have you been all right, Gary? Yeah, I've yeah. been fine. I've been. Uh, I'm up at my cottage, so. Um, Cossage. trying to uh, dream, have a little bit of vacation. Dream, yeah. <laughs> I am. So, I am. I, I, I can't complain, that's for sure. So and then yeah. I'll be uh oh, trying to get my book out before uh before the end of the year. That's coming to uh a close in terms of the writing, then it'll just be oh, getting it off to the publishers. That, so, um brilliant. Uh, well yeah. before we begin, do you want to let everybody know where they can get hold of you, please, Gary? Yep, the best place to get a hold of me, and for when the new book comes out as well, it'll be from the from the same site. That's my website, the Genesis Six Conspiracy dot com. That's Genesis Six with the number Six Conspiracy dot com. And on the website, there is a contact the author uh, button there. And if you want to get a hold of me um, because you like some of the things that I'm saying, or you want to ask me a question, or if I say I've got a document on something. That's the best place to get a hold of me. Also on the website is a generous excerpt of all 98 chapters. So if somebody uh, uh, likes what I'm saying and uh, you, you, you read the table of contents and you want to get a hold of a book, you can also buy a book from me off my website, get a signed copy, and you can also connect over to barnesandnoble.com. You can connect over to amazon.com, amazon.ca, over to the Kindle version as well. And if you're buying from me, I do have an international page to ship overseas. So lots of ways to get a hold of me and the book. And if you also want to get a hold of me, you can get a hold of me through Facebook. Uh, I have on my timeline or on Messenger. And then I also spend some time in a group uh, that has my name on it, uh, Gary Wayne and the Genesis Six Conspiracy. So those are the best ways to get a hold of me. Absolutely fantastic, mate. Thank you. Well, um, I know you haven't spoken with Raven before, but um, I mean, we, we've discussed a few times, aren't we, Raven, about uh, possible subjects uh, to cover. Uh, I mean, like bloodlines, but was wanted 
the brother also of the snake barrow. Um, what? When did when did the brother of the snake begin? Or when was it created? Well, it, yeah, it is a uh, a mythos and. A- I think a reality that has been with us since the beginning of time. And when you look at snake, yeah, when you look at snake imagery, you get this inexplicable, unexplained phenomena that happens on all the continents all around the world, except for Antarctica. And who knows what we'll find in Antarctica (sighs) someday. Uh, <laughs> lots yeah. of interesting things come out of there on a regular basis. Yeah, but yeah, in the joint in the in the joint history of all cultures around the world, you have this snake imagery, and the snake imagery is applied to many of the ancient gods, and it's also applied to the imagery of the original kings, both before and again after the flood, and also understanding the flood is this global, uh, unaccounted for history that uh, you can't explain away because it's just in it's in all cultures and all continents. Like a lot of things that mainstream education, media, and entertainment don't like you to know the full story about. So. We have these gods that are snake-like, and you know you have the dragon gods in China. You yeah. have the Nagas in India. You have the uh, the plume serpent and the feathered serpent in Central and South America, whether or not it's Quetzalcoatl or Botan or the you know the list of all yeah. the vernacular names for the same type of god you have. Uh, Anki and Anlil in the Sumerian tradition and the parent gods like Anu being snake gods and Tiamat, uh, female goddess. And in, in Greek mythology, the parent gods are, for the most part, serpent gods and the Olympian gods, for the most part, are serpent gods, just as Osiris and Isis are serpent gods in Egyptology and the parent gods, not all of them, the Ogdode gods are serpentine, but most of them are. And you get this, this standard that goes all throughout our history about the original gods who present the knowledge and the basis for civilization around the world. Biblically, yeah. we get a similar story. And they're known as the Watchers. The Watchers. Watchers, yes, and they're the Watchers. seraphim. Part part of the Watchers, there's four groups of angels around the throne of God. You have archangels like Michael uh, and Gabriel. You have cherubim, uh, you, which are you know the ones with four faces and span and like cover the throne with wings. Yeah, you have the yeah, yeah they have four faces though. Uh, one of them is a lion like a sphinx. So typically on Earth, you're, they'll show them with one of their faces. So you could have a lion as in a sphinx. You can have a eagle or a raven uh, type of uh, imagery with like the Anunnaki, which are also called watchers. Yeah. And some of them are shown with wings in the same depiction as as the eagle Anunnaki, which have a human face. And all of these are faces of, of the cherubim along with a bull or an ox face and you can translate that either way so they're seen 
So yeah, so when you no see way. the caribs that are in Assyria and places like that, that's the same being, and they're only showing them with one of their faces. Right. And right. so you also have the Ophani, you have the Ophanim, which are the wheel gods or the wheel angels. Yeah, and is, is it like in the book a of wheel, Enoch? A wheel within a wheel, site, like a weird thing with all eyes on it. Yes. Is that the same one? Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it, it's with it's, it's within the wheel. And that's depicted in Ezekiel 1 and Ezekiel 10. And wheel goes back to two words in Hebrew. One is Gilgal, as in Gilgal Raphaim, which is the wheel of the, the giants. But also uh, it goes back, there's another Hebrew word that goes back to wheel, which is Ophan. So in Ezekiel 1 and Ezekiel 10, and you're going to see both of those words utilized in the original Hebrew. One is for an actual wheel. One is for the being that is within the wheel, the angel that is very similar to a cherubim, except that it actually has one face that's different because one of the faces is a cherubim, which is interesting because there's four faces of a cherubim. So I'm not sure which one would be depicted on this Ophanim, as it would be understood. So cherub, I am male plural, Ophan for wheel, I am male plural. And then the last one of the watchers is the seraphim, and that's the serpent-faced uh, angels with six wings. So they're like a, uh, a heavenly six wings. So they're like heavenly dragons, heavenly serpent right. gods. And these are the watchers that are thought to be the watchers in Daniel 4 that come from the throne of God, they're mentioned four times, and they deal with governance and religion. And these are also thought to be, for the most part, the watchers in Genesis 6, the sons of God, who uh, they're called watchers in the book of Enoch, sons of God in, in the Bible, thought to be the ones who, for the most part, did the procreation to create the demigods, the Nephilim who became the kings and sponsored the pantheon worship of the serpentine um, imagery and provided the knowledge to the ancient cultures. So when we talk about this going back into prehistory with all of the nations and including monotheist religions, it's it's pretty much a fact and it's you can't really explain it other than there has to be something to this that has been part of our history and is still with us today and will play a part in the future hey gary i got i got two things i wanted to ask you you know for me i'm cherokee i'm actually from cherokee north carolina um i'm one of the tribal members you know we have what we call Utene. um that's a dragon um there's seven U of them represented by the way yeah they call them Uk. it's u-k-t-e-n-e -E. Uktene. it's like ukulele the same All same right. pronunciation, yeah. but it's Uktani, and ours are drawn with one wing, but it's divided into six segments. I thought you might find that interesting. Yeah, so <laughs> it's, it's it's pretty um, much the but, same but type of Im imagery, isn't it? There's there's seven of them. Yeah. Um, each one represents a each one of them uh, represents the cardinal direction, but also the earth, and the sky, and and the stars, the the heavens. Um, but they're drawn yeah. with six segments to their wings. The second thing I was going to ask you about, yeah. you was talking about the wheels. Have you noticed yeah. over the last four or five years that people are seeing these glowing wheels in the sky that oh, look like yeah. they have that look look like they have a Merkaba ro rotating inside of them? A Merkaba is in yeah. Kabbalist. 
Yeah, we um, had somebody on Raven who, who actually witnessed one, and I, I said it sounds like. I, I, um, I saw funny. one here. I saw one here, and a buddy of mine put my video up on his uh, YouTube channel. But I was going to ask you, Gary, do you think that this is related to the Watchers? I think so. I think so. I think they have a technology that is way beyond what we are at today, and they've always had that being, um, you know, immortal beings from almost you know the beginning, right? So yeah, you have, and depending on which belief system that you're in, right from the beginning. So yeah, I think uh, that that's the case, and you know, we get an interesting sort of uh, convergence on that that we ought to expect that we we might be seeing more of that technology as we get closer to this this sort of destiny that we seem to be you know on, on the road to so and the reason why i say that is and and again i'm I'm a christian for the people who aren't um familiar with me so i tend to look at things and measure it against what's in the bible but i look for commonalities in all the information religions history legends mythologies that are all around the world noting a lot of the uh so-called legends uh, and, and mythologies are actually histories of the people. So we want to be very respectful uh, yeah. as to what might be history and what might be religion. So we want to be careful with that. Anyways, having said that, uh, in the Bible, you have uh, an imagery in Ezekiel 1 and Ezekiel 10 of this chariot of God that has those wheels that we're talking about. And that you also have in, in the book of the Psalms where it's the cherubim that are pulling the chariot uh, or leading the chariot. And it's the power that comes from the wheels from the Ophanim as part of that technology. So you have imagery that comes out of Greek mythology with Apollo and Zeus in particular, where they have six uh, white horses or six unicorns in some of the the depictions um, pulling this chariot of the gods. So a very much a similar sort of imagery that's within the Bible. One's polytheist, one's monotheist. And, and that these unicorns, and I, I write about this in, in, in my upcoming book, is an allegory for a number of things. And one of them would be a cherubim-like uh, angelic being. And, and so you have that same sort of imagery. So no matter which side of the coin in terms of watchers that you're talking about, whether or not it's the Anunnaki that would be Cherubim like, or it would be like the Serpentine Tiamat and New Anki Onlil, um, gods that are Serpentine like, they are probably going to be using similar types of technology as what is described by the God in, in the Old Testament, the God of the Bible, because Again, depending on what your belief system is, is either uh, one is a counterfeit of the other or one is basically using the same type of technology. One might be more superior than the others. I'll leave that for the audience to decide on. But one <laughs> would expect they would have similar types of, of technology. And that um, we, if we are going into a time of this great revealing um, uh, or in the time of the end of this age, uh, and on the verge of the new age, as, as some people would look at it, uh, and, and also from a Christian perspective, a new millennium, um, we should expect to see more of that type of technology and imagery that's starting to come back, as well as the serpentine injury. So everything that we see recorded in in um, other cultures around the world in prehistory, we ought to start seeing more of uh, and more interaction of as we get 
closer to the end time. And that, you know, even in the uh, First Nations of North America, they have a very strong tradition of these uh, feathered gods and, uh, you know, whether or not they're the Thunderbird gods and there's there's different names in in pretty much all the different First First Nations, but they're talking about, again, a similar type of God, right? And some of these are more demigod-like as opposed to to, uh, God-like. And some of these, when I say more demigod-like, they would be more as a demonic sort of serpent that's coming back as opposed to the one that would be more superior and more original. So you have, again, that commonality that is absolutely inexplicable if you think it's just coincidence. Uh, I've never thought it to be coincidence, but since we've been seeing these orbs in the skies all over the planet, I thought you might be able to, to relate it to, you're like me, you study multiple mythologies and multiple cultures. Um, you know, for us, we talk about the Sky Brothers. Um, you know, what they were or weren't is lost in history, but um, yeah. since, since we're well, seeing it's, these... It's, go ahead, go ahead. Say it's still talking about the they're talking about the same types of beings you just what exactly. are they aliens or are they gods right and it's yeah. interesting you use the term orb uh, because orbs are known in in several different um understandings all connected one of them is a ball of light right another one you'll see orbs are depicted in ancientology where they have a god or a face that's pictured within the orb and Uh again it's kind of thought that a lot of these gods or angels are depicted within an orb that represents a god right so the orb is part of the being of the god so whether or not that is just a way of them traveling interdimensionally or that maybe is that are they depicting with those types of gods are they depicting the old fanny i mean i go back between the two because i i can make a good argument i think for both but again it's that consistency of imagery and that consistency of imagery that we're starting to see more orbs um in in our world and we're, of course we're with the technology that we have now we're going to we're going to be able to detect and record more of these encounters Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, it's fascinating. Isn't it? Our, our um, how technology is changing. Uh, do you know? Like, do you think that these um, entities uh, would um, battle with each other? You know, like, would would a seraphim battle with uh, a cherubim? Oh. Do you think that Sorry that's a possibility? That, okay, mate. Do you think that's a possibility? <laughs> They're coming for us. I'll, I'll <laughs> Never fails. I'll, I'll get back to you on that. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that's a. I, I, I think that's a distinct possibility. I think in in two sort of manners that I think you have um, in all cultures a war amongst the gods. And I think you can look at that in two different ways. And I think both are probably true to a certain sort of way. So you have in the Bible this angelic war um, where you have a rebellion. Where you have a rebellion against the, the, the God uh, of heaven and his loyal angels. And we'll have that again in the war in heaven in Revelation 12. So you would have different kinds of angels, different orders of angels all rebel 
rebelling in yeah. that sort of scenario. So you would have a war there. Now, within the physical world, uh, there are rivalries, just as with the bloodlines and the offspring of the giants and, and the bloodlines of the rulers, they have rivalries. They, they may have a similar belief system. They have a similar agenda, but they all are wanting to have sort of more control. So if you can imagine the earth as being um, governed by these fallen angels in a certain sort of split up, you might also imagine that there could be a rivalry there. So you can have a rivalry going on between seraphim and seraphim or seraphim and other uh, uh, angels or gods uh, within the polytheist pantheon as well. And I think right. you see that reflected in particularly in Greek mythology where you have those battles and you know even in Sumerian mythology you have Tiamat who creates the scorpion uh, beings that are depicted in Revelation 9 they're exact same descriptions absolutely amazing if people want to get hold of me I have a document on that and there Brilliant. she creates them yeah she she creates those uh, beings that can destroy uh, the world and by the way, these scorpion beings are recorded in Central South America and some of the First Nations as well uh, in, in their history. And they're to keep the offspring gods in line who eventually do rebel against them in in polytheist history So and take over. So you have those wars that are recorded. And so I think it's not been this sort of smooth sort of thing um, all the way through. And it could be a little bit just, you know, discombobulated and a little bit confusing as that starts to roll out as we get more visibility as they start to interact with us more. Yeah, well, you know, the other thing I was going to ask you, Gary, while, while I had a chance to actually talk to you, what do you think about the Tower of Babel as being part of that battle between one group of, of demigods or, or angelic order and another? Well, I think I think there's a, a lot of things that go on with the Tower of Babel. So the first thing that's rather interesting is that within a hundred years after the flood, you have uh, Nimrod who is using a technology that's not explained biblically or in any of the monotheist cultures, and you know, starting anew with Noah and his three sons and, and the four wives, I mean, they're going to start the world afresh with and not bringing with them all of the, the corruption and the evil of and that and the usage of knowledge in a in a uh, not a good way that was going on in the antediluvian epoch. And so you wouldn't expect that the knowledge that Nimrod somehow gains came through Noah. And in Masonic lore, and in their Polychronicon, they talk about Hermes, who finds the two pillars of Lamech or Enoch, depending on which version that you're reading on that. And yes. it's a location to the knowledge that Enoch had written down on 36,525 books buried under the pyramid in nine vaults stacked on top of each other. Hermes finds one of the two pillars. One is designed to survive a flood. One's designed to survive uh, an apocalypse of fire. And it has the instructions to where this knowledge is and some additional information on, on the pillar. And he brings this knowledge back to Nimrod. Now, Nimrod, within 100 years after the flood, turns it into a complete polytheist state. 
um, which is, you know, kind of saying, okay, well, why was there a flood if it was going to be like this so quickly? But then God steps in and he disperses the language. But what's interesting in there, in the Bible, languages is acting as one people with one language. There's nothing that they're going to be capable of doing. So what do I think is going on here? I think not only do they find the knowledge, but I also think they find... <coughs> Uh, support from Nimrod finds support from the offspring gods who are around after the flood. In this case, you would be looking at Anlil or Anki in Sumeria because this is in Shinar, which is a transliteration for Sumer, or you could look at Baal um, as a Canaanite um, god from Mount Hermon, or you could look at Zeus or Osiris because they're all parent gods and they all produce giants after the flood as well, uh, the demigods. And I think they're assist they're they're receiving help from them as well. And I also and they're worshiping them. And you get one other interesting sort of definition to the word Babel. We get the confusion of the language coming out of Hebrew that Babel is understood as, but if we understand that Nimrod stayed in, in Sumer and that he produced uh from his royal dynasty there, a number of nations that included the Akkadians. Um, the Akkadians. And if we understand that the, Akkadi, the Akkadians, yeah. Um, and you have, you know, they're related to the ancient Babylonians or related to right, the ancient right, okay. uh, Assyrians. It's all the same type of people, but it's one of those older generations. And Akkad, A-C-A-A-D or the K, you can spell it either way. And... In the Akkadian language, uh, Babel means, uh, with the suffix, uh, E-L is a god. And you might see that spelt Babalu as opposed to Babel. And I-L-U is the transliteration of E-L for a god or an angel that's uh, used in, in Hebrew. It could also be A-L as in Baal as well. There's several different transliterations around the Middle East of the same type of word and meaning. And Bab in Akkadian means a gateway. And yep. so you have a gateway of the gods. So he's building something that might be more than just a pyramid or a tower, because it doesn't make much sense that it's just going to be built to try and get into heaven and try and build it up to heaven. <laughs> that's 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 just physically impossible, and they would have known that. But if they were trying to create a portal into heaven, to storm heaven, or a portal and or I should say a portal into the underworld, into Hades or Sheol, uh, where the abyss is located to free the original gods that were locked in the abyss uh, to come out, similar to what we're going to see in the end time. And he, that would be and like, Nimrod is an antichrist type figure. You see that, that would sort be of an whole of, scenario being similar. That would be an open act of war at that point. <laughs> It right? would be. So it you, would mean, be. you would think so. It would be. Yeah. 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 Um, but the tower isn't completed, at least in whether or not it's an Armenian or in uh, Sumerian traditions or in the Aztec tradition or in the Hebrew tradition. The tower is never finished. And that's the other thing is that most people don't understand is the, is the Tower of Abel is recorded in, in multiple civilizations. Yes. And in the Sumerian tradition, it's Enmerakar, who is third generation as Nimrod is. Uh, that has a lot of similarities that I write about in the book. My book has a connection to the Nimrod name, and he's building this tower at Eridu. But it's the exact same story, just through a polytheist lens. 
Yeah. Where, where is the, um, or where was the Tower of Babel meant to be? Or does, does nobody know? <laughs> well, Gary, I'm going to throw something at you, and, and uh, you're probably going to be surprised. Did you know that the uh, First Nations in Canada actually call the region between the Great Lakes and the uh, Hudson Bay Acadia? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I, I was aware of that, and uh, it's it's really not anything that makes any sort of sense, right? And you know, you do get, I mean, well, it, I mean, it's one thing to to understand that that term comes particularly with the French uh, over to Eastern Canada and to the Maritimes, and uh, there there are Acadians who are the ones who are uprooted by the English and they're taken down to Louisiana to become that sort of French population. Um, oh, yeah. But but that doesn't answer why that name is prevalent in First Nations and why well, and it would be, you know. Well, you know, if you look at the languages, the First Nations and including Cherokee, by the way, we have we have an Apabascan language which is common with people in Siberia, people in Polynesia, um, even some of the dialects from the aboriginals in Australia match up with some of the dialects that we use here. Um, so there's a commonality in the language. And pointed, I have always pointed that out as being part of the scattering of languages. It's just different enough that we can't communicate, <laughs> even though we have common terms. <laughs> A um, yes, very good example yes, is, is here. Be frustrating. Well, here for us, um, the word for day is the word that they use over in Aboriginal country for the word for night. Um, <laughs> it's, it's an inversion. But now, if yep. you think about that, that makes sense. There's 12 hours difference. Um, but the, one thing I was yep. going to point out about that area of Acadia is that there's an island up there well they say it was a, it was a, they say it was a galactic impact a cosmic impact but there's an island up there called uh, uh mena korjan reservoir mena, mena it's, it's mena korjan it's m e n i c o u a g g a n mena korjan reservoir and it just happens to be 108 miles round and it's uh, 3,100 3, feet tall, and the very center of it is called Mount Babel. Um, <laughs> the reason why I brought this up to people is, is because Babylon was a global society. We, we found the hanging, hanging gardens of Babylon are in Peru. Everybody goes to visit, visit it all the time. Um, but up there, they said it was a three days march to go around the Tower of Babylon. Well, if you, if you go back to the people who wrote it, that would be the legionnaire's pace or legion's pace, that's three miles an hour, 12, mi 12 hours a day, that's 108 miles in three days. The outside of that perimeter is 108 miles. And I've been working on this for 35 years. Is that uh, well, very coincidental, maybe? Sounds it to me. Well, and, well, and the, the, what's left there is a third, a third of the height, which is what all the, you can go to any, any text that talks about the Tower of Babylon, it says a third was left above. The rest of it was blown apart. Um, I, I bring that up because we have so many connections intercontinentally that uh, it's really important that people see that there are 
a lot of things that have been hidden and muddied and mixed over the last few centuries. <laughs> oh, for sure. Oh, absolutely. And it's inexplicable, again, how many things that show up on that are similar on so many continents around the world that they either have the same source or it's been reduplicated. It's like the sort of archaeology, um, the structures that are built, they have the same sort of structural design. There's this, like a master sort of blueprint that, you know, you have, you know, shows up with like pyramids all all around all around the world and and then and, and the type of megalithic uh, building with the stone blocks all technology that you know we can't do today so there's a connection there that has been blurred by um, people in control and and, and the so-called so seculars that are that are continuing with uh, blurring the the Im imageries of of prehistory so it's not surprising to me that you, we would see these sort of concepts on a on a worldwide basis it seems be more what you would anticipate and, and expect because so much of our history has been lost and we don't know exactly um, you know how large and far reaching some of these these empires were but exactly we also don't know how <laughs> we don't know how, how much technology was actually going into these uh, facilities and if they had access to the knowledge uh, before the flood, yeah. uh, knowledge that we're just catching and, and, and knowledge from the gods that were assisting them. And our technology isn't yet today up to where theirs was. We have absolutely no idea what all went into what would make the, uh, the Tower of Babel a possible wormhole or stargate or interdimensional type of travel. I mean, that that is a level of technology we're just starting to sort of understand with quantum computing and wormholes and how that might that yeah, how that might work down the road. Well, and, and and the problem that we part of the problem that we have, though, Gary, is, is that this stuff has been muddied for us. I mean, even in the last 200 years. Five years of research. A lot of this is still elusive, which is like your work, by the way. You have you have thoroughly dug and researched across many many bridges, which most people won't do. Um, so, what about the bloodlines? That was one of the things that 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 uh, um, General and I was hoping that you would talk to us about. <laughs> in 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 terms of the uh, serpentine bloodline, or yes. just bloodlines in general. Well, it's serpentine part of it, but the other one is the bloodlines in general. Um, I have been yeah. tracking the, uh, and I'll say it out loud. I've been trapping, tracking the Merovingians and the Habsburgs back backwards through the what what they call the the double eagle, but it's actually a double phoenix of Enlil or Enki. Um, mm -hmm. Yep. And I was wondering, I was wondering how you related to that too, because. These families are claiming direct direct lineage from Inky. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, which and which is odd because um, typically Anki is depicted in a serpentine image and the double eagle is more of a cherubim type of imagery. So Exactly. Um, yeah, so how is that sort of possible? And and uh, Anki and Anlil's father was Anu, and he wasn't a cherubim. Uh, so um, 
when we look at the bloodlines and the taciturn language that they like to speak in in terms of their imagery and we see it most commonly in the coat of arms we see some really bizarre um weird uh imagery that shows up <laughs> in these uh, heraldic coats of arms right you've got the yeah. single eagles you've got double eagles you've got uh lions you've got um uh what else you've got unicorns in there you've got all sorts of different things that are showing up that would say what are they trying to communicate with that well they're what they do in their heraldic taciturn imagery is communicate their bloodlines so again using the coat of arms you're going to see those coat of arms of some of the families that are going to change over time in some of the generations and what's happening is is there is a change in it because there is an intermarriage of other bloodlines that is important that is original and needs to be sort of reflected so you've got that sort of historical sort of imagery embedded into the coat of arms when you get into the particular animals um, that are in there these are not animals these are angelic beings so there you go. you're having when you see a dragon that's a seraphim right when you have mm -hmm. an eagle it's a cherubim when you have a lion it's a lion god or an angel that we would know or god in the bible as ariel or nergal or you know gods with out of the pantheon like that and they right. produced offspring which were the rulers as the king which were the priests and were the nobility class and were the uh, uh, the warrior class as well. And they dominated that and they set up basically a four uh, caste system around the world, but it's all dominated at the top by the bloodlines. And, and you see the bloodlines even in First Nations as being the bloodline chiefs as opposed to the elected councils. That's a little bit more of a recent thing. But what you have is this worldwide phenomena where they're they have these bloodlines that go back to the demigods and back to the gods. So when you see that sort of animal type of imagery, typically that's the parent um, uh, angelic or god type of being. But there will be other imagery that will be lesser that will go back to the uh, the demigods. And then they'll also have how that scions in with the demigods and then back to those other gods. So it's when you see with the Habsburgs and the Merovingians um, and they're they're associated with the double eagle, they're basically uh, saying that there is a connection in their bloodlines back to the cherubim, even though most of the imagery that would be in the Merovingian, the Anjou, the Habsburg, the Bourbon uh, families would be seraphim and they use the imagery of, of the double eagle, um, but they also call themselves the dragon bloodlines. The dragon and bloodlines. So dragon, yes. and dragon bloodlines and the fairy bloodlines, or the elven fairy. bloodlines. The and the, yeah. yeah, and the, the fairies, uh, as in little people, right? Except that this yeah, has yeah. a little bit different meaning. Just as we've talked in the past, uh, about the Tuatha Do Danan as being the fairy people, as being the giants, yes. and they were the offspring of the gods. Typically in their imagery, the matriarchal bloodline is represented by fairy and owl. 
uh, so bird-like as well. And typically the uh, male bloodlines, the patriarchal bloodlines are um, allegorized as dragon bloodlines. And you'll like this one, Raven, as raven bloodlines. So, um, <laughs> I love it, I love it. <laughs> And, and so all of that imagery is sort of part of, of their taciturn history that they like to put out there. And it's it's quite complex and you need to be, you know, really initiated to totally kind of understand it and grow up in it. But they use these heraldic uh, uh, flags and banners to go out in front of them, not only into battle, but when they're traveling in other countries, because it communicated to the other nobility exactly who who they were. Like their specific colours and their specific like symbol yes. or, or, or emblem. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah that why, you know, theory. like you see, like what's that? As I say, on the back side of that, I didn't want to interrupt your thought, but on the back side of that, do you think that these angelics or these demigods are still supporting these families? Oh, that's a good question, that mate. Um, well, not the ones who would have produced them because they would be in the abyss, but not all the angels are in the abyss. Only the impassioned ones uh, from a monotheist perspective and the worst of the ones that did the violations against the laws of creations. So there's still a lot of angels that fallen angels that rebelled that aren't in the abyss. So they might be uh, still helping them. And certainly within those bloodline families, they say they communicate with the celestial light master and spirit guides and all sorts of different sort of names for it. And there's, again, several classifications in there of who of those types of beings and one some are more powerful. So I think some of the more powerful ones are the are the fallen angels, but they're also dealing with the, the demonic spirits of the demigods that they communicate with all the time that still have a lot of knowledge on things, but aren't at the same sort of level. And so you have a an angelic whether or not it's the, a polytheist hierarchy and a monotheist hierarchy, and they look quite similar, um, but they're opposing, right? They're mm -hmm. in, in, a, in a polytheist sort of sense. It's it's good versus evil. You pick which is good, which is which is the evil one there. But um, and they're at perpetual odds. Would they be uh, the Nephilim going, or is that another? Well, uh, some answer? some of them are. Right, Some of them right. are. That's the demonic spirits, right? So, and you kind of get there um, with the understanding that uh, a lot of the uh, rituals has to do with reincarnation and the spirit afterwards that doesn't sleep. And typically a monotheist doctrine is, is we sleep until the time of the resurrection. But if you follow the thought process, process that th these are counterfeit spirits, that are put into the offspring of the gods, which are demigods and right. um, heroes, which were also offspring of uh, of gods and human females as as they're defined, which are the same description as how Nephilim and Raphaim are created after the flood. Their body, their when their bodies died, their spirits weren't permitted to go, go to sleep, and they weren't permitted to go into heaven. So they're either going to go to the abyss, which some of them did, as Ezekiel 32 talks about, um, and the ones that are talking to Pharaoh from the abyss, the terrible ones that did terrible things on the ones who were slain on the earth, 
um, or they're going to wander the earth or they're going to be able some of them are going to be able to uh, find their way into the underworld and a lot of the rituals are to help the bloodline spirits not to go a to the abyss somehow or b to um find their way into the underworld and so they're not wandering the earth always looking for a place of rest so you have these demonic spirits and we get the breakdown of that coming out of the post-diluvian giants the giants created after the flood or at least show up after the flood and with the rafa and the raphaim which is the most predominantly used used word for giant in the Old Testament. Nephilim is only used three times. Um, Raphaim is used 25 times in the Old Testament. And the root word for Rapha or Raphaim and is 7495 Rapha. Then there's a 7496 Rapha and a 497 Raphaim, which is the tribe of giants. 7495 is the root word, which means healer or medicine. So if you see the angel like Raphael, usually that means healer of God, right? Or right, right. something to, to that sort of uh, uh, meaning. Um, and it's thought that that part of that was passed on to the Nephilim and the Raphaim, that if you didn't take their head off with a, a sudden blow that it couldn't be repaired, that they had some sort of self-healing <laughs> capability, right? Uh, um, and or used sarcophagi to, to do that in, in other versions. But they had this, you know, you cut off an arm, they could grow back another arm, like a serpentine sort of thing that reptiles really? have, right? So, it's, yeah. And so you had to take them and cut their heads off in, in, a, in, in a sudden way so that they didn't have the ability to repair themselves. And they're hard to kill, just as that <laughs> Afghanistan uh, scenario that happened you oh, know, which, yeah, which yeah, might yeah. demonstrate if it's true, and it seems to be true. And so, um, and that's also why, you know, in the vampire imagery of the, of the, of the serpentine blood drinking Nephilim or serpentine giant, you have to take the head or stab the heart or both, right? Yeah. Otherwise they're going to come back, right? Uh, it's that same type of imagery that's in there as part of that dragon bloodline. And 7496 Rafa means a spirit or a shade or a demon coming out of Hebrew. And those are the uh. bodiless spirits of the giants and then Raphaim 7497 is actual physical giant so you get that sort of meaning sort of coming out so that these are these are the rituals that's designed for the 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 bloodline nobility to find their way so that they're not like the demons Jesus encountered that are desperate to find a body for rest right um they're they're thirsting they need a place to they need an, what they call an oikotarian uh in oh, Greek a, and that's a dwelling place for the spirit the soul and the body so they have to possess like, an animal that, or a human to do that is that like an avatar Gary? similar but different right. so right, and there's right, okay. and there's a couple of there's a couple of distinctions well, in there I, that I would so you have a demon possession which is violent right it's violent, suppressing right. the host mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. But within the polytheist religions amongst the shamans and the adepts is, is that they will invite a spirit in as well. And it's not clear whether it's angelic or it's demonic, but that it's more symbiotic. They've invited them in. And I mean, I don't know who dominates that scenario, yeah, um, but there's something that's guess. sort of in between. <laughs> 
But it's something in between the avatar because it's something that's in between what the avatar is, which is a, an actual god like Vishnu or Shiva, who had many incarnations into human beings, uh, typically when they're young and they grow up with them, where they add wisdom, and it's a, more of a symbiotic relationship than what the demonic one is. So with whatever the shamans are doing, not sure what that is, but it could be either or, or both. We. Well, you know, in, in Asian, in a lot of Asian cultures and even in East Indian cultures, they actually create mausoleums and it had got adopted into a, a European culture, mausoleums, and they would actually inscribe it as a place to rest. Um, do you think that has a, a, a relevance to, to the, to the wandering spirits as, as like, yeah, a, I a, think a, so a, because we also get. I think so, because biblically, and I, I can't bring up the verse right off the top of my head on this, I'd have to look it up, but there are a few verses about talking idols. So what that's implying is, is that somehow either an angelic spirit or a demonic spirit, and demons were worshipped as well from a biblical perspective, um, yeah. that an oikotarian was created for them to dwell and rest in. And some of these could actually talk from what the Bible says. So um, I think that's a distinct possibility. And I also think it's a distinct possibility that you could create oikotarians and other things like in technology, perhaps. I mean, I can't prove that, but I think there's all sorts of uh, places where these spirits could find rest in. Well, you know, I talk about uh, the Aramon, the Zoroastrian traditions. And I point out that the computers, the computers and the internet we have would be a fantastic dwelling place, place for entities. <laughs> yes, mate. Yeah. Well, I mean, we we uh, connected um, the seven uh, headed dragon of Ironman to the seven deadly cities, didn't we, Raven? Yeah. But Gary, and, uh, the other thing I was going to ask you about. Since we're talking about disembodied spirits, what about the, you know, a lot of these bloodline families use a ritual that's called invocation, direct invocation. Um, and they, there's references to them actually after having died, being, using another human shell and supplanting that person so that they can continue on. Have you ever heard those things? I've heard that. I've, I've not been able to prove that they can actually do that. Um, but well, that's where is, I'm at. I've, there is. Yeah. Yeah, that's there where I'm at. I've done the research. Right at, yeah. Go ahead, Gary. So Go there's ahead. Some, there's the, the, from what I understand, the thought is, is it can only be done almost sort of quickly after death. And it's not clear to me whether or not that's going into another person that's still alive or technically still kept alive. And they go into that um, body um, quickly and are able to possess that that body. Um, but there there is certainly rituals that, you know, come to the service where they're trying to do that. But. I don't know how successful that actually is because there's so many bodiless spirits. So that may have some success rate because you do get some people that seem to show up in different bodies throughout history or they just don't die. Uh, yeah. So St. Germain would be, you know, as one of those types of legends, right? That's, um, that was so what I was going to ask there, you about. <laughs> <laughs> so brilliant, that brilliant. would be the only way to explain 
explain that. Um, some other people, you know, look at St. Germain, um, but this is again from a polytheist perspective is because uh, they look at Jesus as, as being part of the, the polytheist pantheon that was corrupted. Um, that when Jesus raised uh, Lazarus, uh, that that's the immortality that was created that became several names of people throughout history, including St. Germain. So, but I think it's more likely that uh, St. Germain would be, if it's, if it's true, and there certainly is such a strong uh, mythos about it, um, that uh -huh. that would come from that type of uh, uh, spiritual sort of transference. And we understand in polytheism that they believe that this is possible because we see it in the modern writings in terms of trying to um, you know, transfer your conscious into a clone body or into a, you know, some sort of robotic body or into yeah, a computer. Yeah. We see all, all sorts of science fiction on that today, and that's part of that belief system. So there may may have been knowledge that only a few actually have that knowledge of because uh, it's power for them to to be able to to keep it to a select few. Um, yeah. But how successful or 100% uh, proof? I mean. I don't have it. I think you yeah. have to be, you know, a pure bloodline to uh, to have access to that type of knowledge. Well, and, you know, they, they say that uh, there's a writing that came out of India. Um, I found in an esoteric library and it said that the, the reason why that these bloodlines are so psychopathic is because so many of them have refused to rest. That's the word they used, which I found very um, telling. <laughs> They refused to rest and, and instead chose to forcibly inhabit a new uh, body. Um, you know, and, and can we prove it? It's just like so many other things. Uh, 35 years of research and, and all the different places and people that I've spoken to, and I'm sure you run into this too. It's like, yes, here's a rumor and an Indian innuendo and an insinuation and a mythos, but can I verify it in other sources? That's where you, <laughs> you know? And I, I don't yeah. speak of things unless I have multiple, multiple groups around the planet that I can verify things with. I, I just don't. Um, but no, I really appreciate you answering questions and, and going off on these tangentials because these are things that people need to know about, like the bloodlines and the and the. Here's another one that I was going to ask you about. Why I had the opportunity. What do you think about the conflict that we're seeing between these bloodlines right now? Is this just a continuation? Still there? Gary? Did we lose him? Gary, you okay? Oh, I have my... He's there now. He's there now. Yeah. I, I'm there. I had... He's there. I've got, two, I've got two mutes, one on my on my headset and one on my screen, and I had <laughs> that one of them still off. So anyways, I wanted to... Uh, I'll, I'll get to the, what's going on today, but I wanted to sort of finish off uh, on okay. that uh, spirit transference type of thing that, to me, is, is if you are... Um, if you have the uh, in your body the the spirit that comes from the gods or or the fallen angels, the spark of divine, as some people like to call it, and that you're trying to transfer that into a human, you'd probably do it in a way that was more akin to what the gods had done and to what would give you a longer oikotarian uh, that would long la you know, last longer for, because I mean, if you were to transfer into an older body, you would have a shorter life and you have to keep doing it more often. So with Vishnu and Shiva and, and the uh, gods of India, they would 
do their incarnations in a child or a baby. So, you know, before mm-hmm. the spirit is sort of formally sort of coming about and more easily to be more symbiotic at that point in time. If I was them and I'm not, but if I was trying to do that, I would probably try and do it with a baby as opposed to an adult. And knowing that your spirit's going to be alive in that body and continuing and be able to to control it, uh, that's the way I would do it. And it, would, it seems to be more likely in terms of everything they do, they try and emulate what their parent gods did. So it that would so be. Wrong. It sounds yeah, all so wrong. It does, but, babies done it. Wrong, but it, but it, it does go. It does go to their psychopathy. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is obvious. It does. Yeah. 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 And, uh, you know, the other thing is, is, you know, they like to sacrifice babies in their rituals. Right. So because the more innocent uh, the victim is, is the more satisfying for whatever they get out of that. Um, So in terms of their energy or from the drinking of their blood. So it may be even tied into that part of the rituals as well or an extension of that kind of 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 a ritual. So yes, when we look oh, is at that like the how the adrenochrome, Gary. Go ahead. That the adrenochrome, adren- adren- adrenochrome, right? right. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, yeah, mate. Well, and and I and and, 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 and your and vampirism, which is something you had talked about before. Yes. Yes. Draconis. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, because they're trying to draw off the energy of that other being, right? And the Nephilim, after they lost their immortality in the physical world, they were trying to restore that. And it was their belief that the drinking of the blood would extend their life and give them greater cognitive abilities. In other words, there's this some sort of knowledge and energy transfer that would also come with it. And I think they still believe that to to a large degree today. And, and, well, and is, they're, they're is, doing you know, it part of the... Yeah. They're doing it today in Are a little bit different. Today? Yeah, well, what they do is, is they're actually taking blood transfusions from young people, college age, and injecting it into middle-aged and elder people um, as part of their, their thought process. So yeah. it's still going on today. Yeah. They're just doing it under the guise of technology rather than... Yeah, under the guise of the uh, serpentine imagery of the uh, medical associations and health associations <laughs> around the world, whether it's single snake yeah. motif or dual serpent motif, it's all yeah, under exactly. the same think, guise. Do you think um, <laughs> any of it could be linked to blood magic? Uh, I'm, I'm not sure what you mean by blood magic. Well, um Maybe. The original sayings, uh, General, was that they used blood uh, through and youth and longevity. Right, um, right. So technically, it would be magic. Um, and the old blood, now they're actually using the technology under the. You're break, Raven, you're breaking up, mate. To, uh, to, yeah. Um, they're using yeah, the technology I'm... of medicine. Yeah. They're they're using the technology of medicine to Yeah. Help. Yeah. Raven, Raven's breaking keep... up on my end too. I yeah, can't, I can't hear Raven. him at all. No. Raven, you're breaking up, mate. All right. Am I back? Yeah, you you sound now, mate. You sound. Thank you. Thank you. But uh. 
they're using the they're using the technology under the guise of medicine to do the same rituals. It's just that now they're taking the blood yeah, out with a out. needle. Yep. Well, and and here's uh, here's something that uh, uh, is usually an eye opener for a lot of people. You know, in the uh, when we talk about the end time, you have Babylon as that Babel religion that's going to rise and be more than a religion. It's a city and it's a geopolitical organization and it is a trade and commerce operations and it controls the entire world until Antichrist comes along. But in the King James version of the translations of how Babylon achieves this in a lot of cases through her sorceries. And, uh, you know, sorcerer is an interesting word because it's used by the Rosicrucians and Freemasons who created the Royal Society, which the Medical Association answers to to this day, um, that they were the last of the sorcerers and the first of the scientists. And sorcery goes back to the Greek word pharmakos, and it has a couple mm -hmm. other variations, pharmakias and pharmako. So, and that means... Uh, as it as the root word as it comes through today is pharmaceuticals, right? Um, and that it's includes crazy, it? It really things, is crazy. <laughs> things that would yeah things that would you know prevent pestilence is what they introduced over the last couple of years uh, with a, a newer type of technology that probably has uh, some open end uh, downside to it for sure to say the least. And what's also interesting <laughs> about that is pharm <laughs> pharmacia is also you know defined and translated into some english translations as uh, magical spells right so yes. you have that sort of imagery coming together and then the other thing under the uh, serpentine imagery of pharmacia and pharmaceuticals is is that they're um they have two symbols for their um for their industry one is the mortar and a, and a pestle which is kind of this mixing of these concoctions right but the more yeah, prominent alchemy. one is the yeah, alchemy uh, but the most common one and the older one is the bowl of hygieia and hygieia yep. is the goddess of health and she was the daughter of Asclepius, which is the god of medicine in Greek mythology, and his son and Hygieia's brother was uh, Hippocrates, whom doctors take the Hippoc uh, Hippocratic oath to. And the symbol of the bowl of Hygieia <laughs> has a snake standing over this goblet or grail. <laughs> um, that, I mean, you, you just can't make this like, stuff up. No, do you no, think that, a, that would be like a grail for drinking blood, maybe? Well, that would be the tradition and or mixing right, right. Um, concoctions for for immortality, right? So, well, you, Gary, <laughs> you brought it up. So so I'll ask you now that we uh, now that we breached the subject with the DNA changes that are being um, imposed upon people. I have said that is this a possibility that by changing the DNA, which is what it does. Are they trying to mask people so that they will not be recognized by the creator? Well, they're certainly, I think they're going to be trying to change that DNA. So to try and sort of accomplish that and they will want them to do it knowingly and willfully. So they'll, they'll have 
to be seduced into doing it or forced into doing it. I, I ultimately think the mark of the beast will have a significant part of that altercation to the DNA because there's only a couple of things that I sort of get biblically that, you know, would cross that sort of threshold of such a large crime that the people who take the mark of the beast and obviously they also worship Satan and Antichrist um, in the, as, as, as they're depicted in the book of Revelations, they are going to burn in the lake of fire forever with the fallen angels and the demons. And so that sort of leads you to what the fallen angels did. They not, not only did they rebel, but they violated the laws of creation by creating Nephilim and probably doing significant DNA manipulation and supplying that technology to the ancient world because you get these creatures that are talked about in all the cultures around the world, you know, crazy things like, you know, centaurs and, you know, that are created in a yeah, cloud that yeah. almost have sort of three types of DNA type of mixture yeah, the, in there, the, the angelic, animal, and and human. Yeah, and well, the Chimera well, is the classic yeah, the example. And 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 King Hababa of the Cedar Forest is the classic one. His yeah, King you know, Hababa. Mount Hermon. <laughs> yeah, King he Hababa. is. He's got yeah, he's got multiple types of animals in there, and he's some form of of Rephaim or Nephilim that's in the Epic of of Gilgamesh. So again, we're talking about this technology that they would have had before the flood that we're just catching up to today, and that the gods provided this to the antediluvian world, which, you know, was bringing about the apocalypse. It's more than just the violence. So if you look at that word in the flood story, where you have the creation of the Nephilim as the introduction to the flood story. And there's no separation in Genesis 6, 1 through 4 th with the start of the commission of Noah. Um, and you have uh, the world being, the earth being totally corrupted. Well, that's the Hebrew word shakath, and that means spoil, decay, shikoth. ruin, shikoth. destroy, shakath. S-H-A-C-A-T-H as it's transliterated out of Hebrew. And yeah. the whole earth was spoiled. That means the plant genomes. That means the animal DNA. That means most of the human DNA. And so another concept that's in Christianity, Judaism, and polytheist religions is nothing is new under the sun. So it's going to happen again. Mm -hmm. We've seen this before. Yeah. And we're starting to see that capability now. And I think that's also the reason why God calls uh, the animals to the ark, because he knows which ones have not had their DNA manipulated with or changed in any sort of way, just as he's picking not only what, uh, from a uh, monotheist perspective, we would understand spiritually clean, but physically clean with the eight that are going to survive on the ark to start anew. And he selected those as well. And so uh, I think, yes, this DNA manipulation, this DNA introduction is going to be part of things moving forward. And if we now link in with what the Committee of 300 is doing in conjunction with the Club of Rome and trying to bring about the 10 groups of nations for the world empire. You also have the Davos community that is answering to the Club of 300 that is 
includes as well answering to the Club of 300 and working with the Davos community, all of the banking systems and all the economic systems in the Committee of 300 is basically an Olympian turn of uh, out of Greek mythology and gods of 300 gods or 300 families. Uh, yep. And so you have you have what's going on there is this implant system they were talking about in 2017 that would give you a connection to you know all, all the knowledge you ever wanted. It would automatically link you into trade and commerce, uh, link you into the internet, but it would also provide digitally and subatomic and DNA level um, messaging that would go into your body that would continually uh, keep you healthy and give you a form of immortality. Uh, and, and so when you look at all of that sort of coming together, uh, I think DNA manipulation and change uh, into something different is on the agenda to try and, depending on your point of view, to try and get people either ready from a, from the rebellious side to be part of the battle against the God of the universe and the loyal angels, or from a monotheist perspective, they're trying to destroy that human genome and wipe humankind from the face of the earth because they only want humans for sacrifice and 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 slavery. Um, and the new world is only for the bloodline families, that, that spark of the divine, that thousand points of light they like to talk about politically. That's the world they want to create. Yeah. You know, if you look at the... If you look at the plants with the GMO and you look at the earth that they've toxified and poisoned, and then you look at what they're doing with the experimentation on, on the physiology of animals and humans, if people cannot see that we are in the days of Noah, <laughs> um, and if they want to go to the Gilgamesh, that's fine. They can go to the, to the uh, um, Enuma Elish. Um, it's still the same story. The, the things had become so corrupted and so toxic and so poisoned that it had to be cleaned. Um, and we're there yeah. again. Yeah. Forget that we're there again. And, you know, a lot of people look at the Noah story as being, you know, a copy of the Gilgamesh story, but, you know, they're, they're similar on a macro level, but they're distinctly different um, in a lot of the details. Yeah. And for me, the biggest, the biggest detail that's different is Apna Pishtun uh, or Zaya Zudra, as he's, He's called in some other uh, translations of the same story. He is two-thirds God and one-third human. That yeah. is not what Noah is, unless you transform Noah into a Nephilim. And so it's a Nephilim um, survival story of giants on the ark. And what's also interesting in the Epic of Gil Gilgamesh is, is you have Gilgamesh, who um, is the son of Lugobanda, and about sixth generation after the flood, and uh, the also his mother is a mother goddess, uh, Nin or Ninsun, as some translations have it. And that's like a second incursion or a second creation of of, of, uh, of Raphaim after the flood, as at least from uh, how I would understand that. And so everything about the Epic of Gilgamesh is a story about demigods and yeah, demigods. their survival. Yeah. Uh, Nephilim yeah, they, and Raphaim, and and right. even in the, even in the even in even in the Greek uh, story, uh, where you have Deucalion and Pyrrha, 
as the Greek Noah is what they like mm -hmm. to call it. Well, Deucalion is the son of Prometheus. So Prometheus is either a Prometheus. Nephilim or a god. Either or, Deucalion is still a demigod giant. So it's another yeah. giant survival <laughs> story. Well, you know, a lot of people say it's a second incursion, but it, if you look at the, the mythos that, that surrounds this, it, it seems like there were survivors and they immediately went back to their old habits. And, you know, something else, too, you talked about, you know, the immortality that's being promised. Isn't that one of the oldest lies that, that humanity has been told? Thou shalt not surely die. <laughs> yep. Yep. Well, and, and what's really crazy about that story is, is that not I shouldn't say it as a story of that accounting in, in, in the book of Genesis is that Adam and Eve already had access to the tree of life. So they already had immortality. And so what? Uh, the Nakash, the serpent is saying is to Eve is that, well, you're not going to die just by eating this apple, but it's going to extend your knowledge and you're going to have knowledge of both good and evil. Uh, and so what happens is that they are ostracized from the Garden of Eden and no longer have access to the tree of life. So <laughs> they lose that immortality in the trade for this knowledge. And uh, and it's, it's, it's a rather ironic tale for sure. But you're right. That is the promise of godhood, which is the two principles of polytheism is immortality in the physical world. Uh, as opposed to the uh, uh, the heavenly uh, spirit world and access to unlimited knowledge. And that's what's going to be promised again as we get closer to the end time. It's, um, oh, it's beyond fascinating, all of it. <laughs> um, it Garrett, do you know, um, it's, would you say um, the brother of the snake was I was one of the first secret societies, so to speak. Oh, absolutely it was. Um, right. Because I mean, you have the society being um, started by mostly serpentine gods. And so yeah. you have, if you, if you go from um, sort of a Western um, view of, of, of prehistory, you have a fellow by the, name of Enoch, son of Cain, as opposed to Enoch, son of Jared. And in the Masonic uh, belief system and the Gnostic belief system is, is he learned this knowledge from Cain, uh, that knowledge that was passed on from Adam, from the knowledge that God provided Adam to run this absolutely huge facility called Eden that had orchards and crops and animals and all sorts of uh, herds and things, and it had rivers that went from the Nile to the Euphrates, and even possibly even more. Right, and right. this, and he was provided knowledge, plus the knowledge of good and evil through the through the apple story and the, and the uh, um, the serpent um, enticing Eve. And this is the knowledge that passes on to Enoch, who takes this knowledge, and they they. He's going to develop it into the seven sacred sciences that we know as the seven liberal arts. And they're going to keep seven this knowledge sciences. from the mundane. Yeah, he's going to keep it from the mundane. In other words, the Sethites. And, and uh, this knowledge is going to be put into 
a mystical religion that I like to call Enochian mysticism. And this is the religion that crosses the flood to via Hermes to Nimrod as well at Babel. And they're going to set up these degrees in the mystical religion and teach the knowledge, but to develop the knowledge and the disciplines, he creates seven sacred sciences, as, as the Masons like to call it, and it's going to be taught in the mystery schools, whose right. imagery is a serpent in, in ancientology. Just as wisdom, <laughs> just as wisdom was the image represented by the serpent, and just as, you know, like the god Ta, for example, in Egypt was a, was a double-headed helix serpent symbol that is seen in, in the medical association and Heliopolis was a home of doctors and stuff as well and and had serpentine imagery but that's I'm, I'm, I'm going down another rabbit hole so I'll get back on on track here and it's out of the mystery schools that yeah, it's out of the mystery schools that you see the secret societies being developed at that point in time um, and you see that as part of that tradition still in the universities today um, as they're being taught in all Greek, Egyptian, Babylonian type buildings that, you know, uh, honor the, the, the pantheon, you see that, yeah, you know, all of yeah. these different societies within the universities and some of them are for the purebloods, like in the Ivy leagues, for example, like the skull and bones. So it has that history and they're the ones bringing this knowledge and, and to the earth and developing what's going on in the antediluvian epoch and then again after the flood, but in a controlled way that serves their purposes and not humans' purposes. We have mythology in the United States, and it's also, uh, after talking to Grubb over in Australia, we found out it's common over there. You know, there is an old mythology that the eagle chased the serpent out of certain lands and a lot of people say oh well that was a good thing well then i look at the bloodlines and i realize that all they did was trade one bloodline for another yeah yeah um, yeah well and so when you when you start to look at it from that perspective then um when when we talked earlier about um uh, more than just the seraphim creating bloodlines, things start to make sense. Mm -hmm. If you put together what I talked about requiring an, an oikotarian to act um, physically in this world, the fallen angels, if they want to reproduce in this world, because they're spirit beings, they need an oikotarian. They have the ability to make their own oikotarian, which is a soul and a body, and put their spirit into it. And if they can do that, they can pass on DNA. So now, if you have more than just the seraphim angels uh, passing uh, on their DNA and creating serpentine-looking individuals, just like you have serpentine kings all throughout history, and you want to look at Akhenaten even, you know, around oh, yeah. 1200 uh, BC, he's still got that serpentine sort of look and that elongated skull. Um, you have other types of gods that we referenced earlier on. So you have like the eagle and you have like the lion and yep. you have like Anubis, which is a jackal or a dog-like god. Yeah, like a dog Nephilim, oh. right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> just as Anubis um, created a whole race of, of people, warrior yep. uh, Nephilim and lived in, in Sinoopolis, which is means dog city. Dog <laughs> I mean, they had their yeah. own dog, city. Dog city, literally. Yeah. Dog city. Hey, Gary. Yeah. Now, now that we've... Now that and, we've and, 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 well, I was just going to finish. Go ahead, go ahead. 
I'll do it quickly for you because I know I, I I tend to go on and on. Uh, oh, no, you also have uh, that e you have that eagle that we talked about as representative of the cherubim, and you mm -hmm. have the tangu, which are owl-faced or raven-faced um, kings and priests and warriors that are all throughout Southeast Asia. And in the Kishimaya version, they're called the Zilbalba with one particular version called Kamazots, which means house of the bat. And if you Google Batman. that, it looks like the Batman, Batman outfit. Yeah. yeah. And you yep. have you have gods like Nergal and Mahis and, and, and uh, Sekhmet, uh, just to name a few, and they produced offspring. And you have all of these reliefs around the world of these lion warriors. Some of them have human heads with a lion body. Some of them have a lion's head with a human body. And then biblically, you get the lion men of Gad, uh, the, the lion men of Moab, and you also get Arioch, one of the kings kings of the giant nations coming out of Mesopotamia in the war against giants. Her name is Arioch, which means lion-like. And none of that yep. is coincidental, particularly when you talk about Ariel and Ari as the root for Arian, as Indo-Arian, as in the giants after the flood. Yep. There's way too many connections there. And so when we're talking about exchanging the bloodlines from an eagle to a seraphim, that's the demigod bloodline, right, of of uh, that were produced by separate kinds or orders of fallen angels. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's uh, oh, my mind's blown again. <laughs> well, see, my thing is, is having Gary on, having Gary on is fantastic because we have oh. parallel, parallel research and time. I mean, you know, 30 years, most people don't, don't have that time invested. The other thing I was going to ask you while, while I had a chance, Gary, is have you noticed like with the d wave computers the quantum machinery um there's a really good program that that our buddies at uh, Tornmore, new york patriot and lux did that uh the big low industries um yeah, they're trying to the they are trying to punch through and create wormholes whether with the computer or with uh higher technology and they're trying to reach through they say dimensions um yeah what do you think as far as reaching into a lower or higher realm trying to make contact or bring something through? Well, I think that's what the technology is designed to do. So quantum computing is designed to go into multiple dimensions. And so if you look at where the abyss is or uh, the underworld is, that would be maybe physically in the earth, but in another dimension. So in a different sort of wavelength or, or different dimension. I mean, we don't know how many dimensions there are, um, but more, as we go, there seems to be more, more than one, that's for sure. And trouble is, is with uh, the quantum computing, it, it's sort of like in, in, in a single shot type of approach to it. So it needs something more. So what they've been trying to do, whether it's at CERN and other locations around the world, is marry quantum computing um, up with AI to search in multiple universes, multiple locations at one time. And well, as that know, technology, go ahead. I was going to say, and you know that they're marrying human DNA into these systems, right? <laughs> yes. Yes, because they want they they're going to want that biological sort of connection that is going to be able to self perpetuate itself, right? So it's going to have to have that in in with the long term, and so they're searching for a couple of things. A, I think they're trying to get into the abyss 
first and let their uh, um, let the uh, the fallen angels that are in there out of the abyss and all the demons in there, just as Revelation 9 talks about. So there is a time when that's going to happen. I think they're trying to do it ahead of time and bring about this rendezvous with destiny sooner than later than the ordained time is what they're trying to do. But they're also, as we talked about, looking to provide unlimited knowledge in, in the Vedas and in the Upanishads in particular. And mm -hmm. most of the original quantum computing scientists said you need to understand the Upanishads if you're going to understand quantum computing because all of the principles are in there. Yes. And also in that teaching, there is a particle that they're looking for. And it's sort of allegorized as the God particle that's sort of misrepresented. In the true quantum computing thing that they're looking for is uh, this Atma particle. Uh, A-T-M-A or A-T-M-A-N, at man particle, that is an invisible particle that merges with a particle that they could measure that they believe has all the knowledge of the universe that transmits that knowledge through quantum entanglement throughout the universe instantaneously. And they're trying to find that to be able to tap into it to offer, uh, along with immortality, to provide... Uh, the ability to become gods in the physical world that will be delivered through the mark of the beast. Yeah, no, is exactly. that the um, god particle that they call that as well? Yeah, right. Well, right. well mis yes, but, it's a mislabel. But, <laughs> mis right. Yes, right. it's it's design misdirection or an allegory, right? It's just a mislabel. There you people. go. And they always encode things into their allegories. So, Travis yeah. Smart House is on there. Yep. <laughs> Well, you know, they'll lie to you and tell you the truth at the same time. <laughs> yeah, they do, mate. Yep. They sure so, do. So, Gary, did you see uh, Gordy Rose? He was one of the original ones working on the quantum computer. Did you see his reference to Cthulhu-type entity, entities? No, I, oh. I have not, but... He, he actually was working... He's one of them that established the D-Wave computers using human DNA as part of it. Yeah. And he says, yeah. we've been in contact with entities, and you have to think of, like, Cthulhu. Um, they're completely indifferent to humanity and nobody, yeah. nobody yeah. even blinked. Can you imagine? Yeah. Nobody even blinked. Yeah. Well, and the other name that comes up is Metatron, right? Oh, yeah. Metatron. And if Metatron. people aren't familiar with that, yeah, Metatron. Yeah. And think of like uh, the meta universe and stuff like that and what Facebook yeah. is calling themselves. So Metatron is uh, one of the two Enochs and is in third Enoch. Um, which is either completely corrupted or a polytheist version or maybe written by Enoch, son of Cain. But he becomes so powerful through his knowledge and the development of the seven sacred sciences that he is raised up to be like the son of man status or a angelic-like status. And with that change and with that immortality through the knowledge, he is his name is changed from Enoch to Metatron. And so a lot of the people that are working in these high level technologies are saying they're communicating with a being called Metatron who is also guiding them. Yeah. What, what do you what do you think what do you think about the connection between the Metatron Metatron information that we get and the description of Aramon? Oh, hey, good good shout there, Raven, mate. Uh, well, it certainly has a lot of sort of phonetic sort of relationships and uh, would fit a similar type of being, except that 
Aramon seems to be more powerful than Metatron. So I would say <laughs> that uh, Metatron would be a, more of a disciple of Aramon because Aramon is basically like a Satan-like entity, as, as I recall, from Zoroastrianism, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Well, you know, with me, it was it was like I was looking at the Metatron and then I was looking at the yep. influences um, ascribed to, to Aramon. And we know that a lot of this has has a core um, origin, um, whether it be from the Nephilim or from 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 the Enoch of the Metatron. But we know a lot of this has the same core um, origins. And then if you look at Aramon, it says Aramon will subtly introduce itself, its energy, its technologies into people without their knowledge. Then we look at television and we look at the injections and all the other things that are that yeah. have been going on. Um, and I, I study extensively. I've studied Steiner and, and his works, but and I've studied Zoroastrianism. I've actually I've actually had been lucky. I've been in touch with some Persian refugees in India that 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 I've gotten uh, original information from. But what we right, what we're right. looking at here with the Metatron issue is and, and the Days of Noah issue. How is it? Maybe you broke up then, mate. Oh, I'm sorry. I was saying, how is it that people that study biblical um, aren't seeing what we're seeing? <laughs> well, I guess there's two groups of people that study biblically. There's the ones that are contrarians and uh, like myself. Um, and <laughs> but there's, you know, if you if you look at what is done in churches today, there's two things they don't teach. One is prophecy, and the other one is prehistory. And they're uh, not taught about it in seminary schools, and they're told not to teach about it in the churches. And so it's that sort of corruption that has gone through the organizational structures of both Protestantism and, and Roman Catholicism that has is not prepared their people for what we're seeing today. And that's why they're going to be so easily led astray because the churches are not doing their jobs. And we certainly didn't see the churches doing their jobs in terms of leadership during the last pestilence. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, so, so uh, I'm, I'm going to be running out of time here pretty soon. And we've been going for about an hour and a half, but um Gary, can you explain to people kind of where you're going with your new book? Because this is the first time I've heard about it. Oh, yes, yes, Gary. That would be uh, brilliant, mate, if you could uh, share a little <laughs> bit, at least with us. Well, at, le at least the well, direction and, and general study. Come on, anyway. Gary. Come on, Gary. <laughs> oh, no, we're going to talk about that. We'll talk about that. No worries. So I wasn't going to – I said I would never – I said I would never write a, a sequel to the Genesis 6 conspiracy because I just didn't want to do more of the same thing. Uh -huh. And so the Genesis 6 conspiracy was sort of targeted not just at Christians, but, you know, I certainly wanted it targeted at Christians. But I also wanted it to make it so that non-Christians may have a look at it and that they would start to sort of open up their eyes what's in the bible and christians might look up open their eyes as to see the commonalities that are talked about in other traditions and so um the more i've done shows over the last six years and stuff um 
And, and by the way, I, I have another book on the go that I set aside. So I was determined not to do a sequel. But what? You're a machine, Gary. So what I kept. <laughs> it's hard to quit. It's what, hard to quit. I had, it? <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. But the more I uh, did talk shows where I was taking questions, um, and the more communication I, I had with the audience, and particularly with the Christian audience, which, as I said, has, has not been taught um, these things in the in the churches. There is such a hunger out there for more information. So as much as information that I have in the book, you can go deeper on things. So oh, the yeah. Genesis 6 conspiracy part two is going to be uh, called prehistory and prophecy. And I'm going to connect what people need to know about prehistory to better understand end time prophecy. And so there's so much more written in the Bible than what most people talk about when it comes to the angels, the the organizational structure of the angels. There's so much, much more about how many tribes of giants are talked about after the flood and how they impacted the world and how we know these, these, these are giants. And there's so much more to the information that was in the time of the Exodus and who Israel was after. And I go through all the different sort of the Rephaim and Nephilim campaigns. And and I'm linking that to to endine prophecy. So um, all the way through, but then I, I do a section on end time prophecy where I'm bringing forward the allegories that they need to understand uh, for for the end time. So that's sort of the nutshell about it is is connecting prehistory to prophecy and uh, showing people how much is in the Bible about both, but more more importantly, how much information is about giants, uh, their bloodlines, and uh, angels uh, that, that is in the Bible that they've not been taught. And believe me, it's, it's, it's an astounding amount of information. Oh, I could imagine, mate. Uh, would, he, would he have similarities to, um, I mean, I've not read it fully, but the Book of yep. Enoch. Yep. Um, yep. Yeah. Interesting. Well, interesting, mate. Well, so um, in, in this I, in this I'm, book, I'm, you I, are I, in this book, you are are differentiating ahead. between Enoch and Metatron too. I, I take it. Oh, absolutely, as I did in the first book. So um, there are there are two different Enochs for sure, and people need to understand that. And I spend in the first several chapters in the first book uh, setting people mm -hmm. up for it. And I get a lot of people who start the book off and say, I don't like your take on Enoch. And I tell them, keep reading. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> abso absolutely, itself. absolutely. Brilliant, brilliant. Uh, well, but you know, there's also things in the Bible, you know, uh, in the history and in the Bible. I mean, you've got the the Hyksos that are interconnected in the Israelite story. And who are the Hyksos? And Hyksos. That these are part of the bloodlines. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, these were the shepherd kings. And, yep. uh, you know, they come from the dark haired uh, Aryan line of, you know, black hair and black beards, right? As opposed to the yeah. red hair or the blonde hair. Uh, yeah. part of the Indo-Aryans, and they are part of the, uh, I think, probably more Aryan um, and more Mesopotamian, but they're basically, you know, come from the from the north, from the Syrian side, and they're very similar to how the Syrian kings in Gilgamesh are depicted, and, and uh, they are 
two different houses, uh, one a higher house and one a lower house, and they're called Amau and Shamau, as they're called. Amau and Shamau. And these are, yeah, and these are bloodlines that are introducing the technology that the Nephilim had or the Rephaim had after the flood of the iron and the chariots, right? It's the Scythians that develop all of this and the horsemanship. And they add iron to it, and they absolutely overwhelm the Middle East and end up ruling in 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 Egypt. And it's the imagery of the Merovingians that you can tend to get that is a Hyksos, which they also take their bloodlines back to um, <laughs> uh, as sort of the pictures of, of the Merovingians. And you get an understanding in there that there are these the separate lines of of giants that are intermingling into the Middle East because, I mean, into the covenant land and mixing in with uh, the southern Horim and Edomites as part, part of the bloodlines that are going to come, come out of there and that there is an intermarriage between humans and, and Raphaim that would create smaller giants, so to speak. So you have the offspring of the gods and human females to create Nephilim and Rephaim, but after the flood, you have the Rephaim intermarrying with humans because they have a reproductive issue. Just as the Ugaritic text talks about their Rephaim, they're trying to get Baal, uh, Baal and Asheroth to come back to create more of the giants because they can't reproduce. So they're going to have to intermarry with humans. And that's why you have nine patriarchless tribes of Canaan uh, because mm -hmm. Raphaim patriarchs aren't listed in the table of nations. And so you get Canaan, Heth, and Sidon, but you don't get these other nine patriarchs that are, they're named after Raphaim. That's why they're not listed. And I will right. walk through right. chapters of that, for example. And as a basis for that, understand that as one classic example that you just can't deny no matter what, you have as the patriarch of the Anakim, a uh -huh. fellow named Arba, as he's talked about Arba. in the book of Joshua. Arba. And Arba. Uh, yeah. Arba. A-R-B-A. -R -B -A, yeah. And uh, he's the father of, of the Anakim. And the Anakim are Rephaim giants, as they're described in Numbers 13 and throughout the Old Testament, but really defined as Rephaim in Deuteronomy 2, along with Emim and Zuzim and other tribes. But these are, um, the, uh, or I'm sorry, Arba is the patriarch of this one tribe or one country of the giants, which is a very important role in, on ancient history that, I'll, that I cover in the book as well. And he's not listed in the table of nations and neither is Rafa for the Raphaim. Uh, and Raphaim shows up actually as a tribe twice, uh, once in Genesis 14 and once in Genesis 15. One's in the War of Giants that I mentioned with Arioch. Arioch, and the other one is, is when Abraham is being gifted the land from the Nile to the Euphrates, you know, that the Raphaim I don't, are part of people. I, just, I so, don't want to, uh, I, I don't want to interrupt your train of thought, but I have heard you say this before, and I have noticed this too. Is there any explanation as to why these two particular groups were not listed? Oh, not a good question. Well, yeah, because uh, the, their patriarchs aren't human. So you get the 70 patriarchs uh -huh. in the table of nations, except nine aren't named. These are uh, 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 giant nations. These gotcha. are the pure blood gotcha. giant nations, right? So, And so you don't get a patriarch 
for the horim. You don't get a patriarch for um, uh, the the avim. You don't get a patriarch for the emim, the zamzuzim, right? You don't get patriarchs. You. you get other names, and there and there's other tribes that don't have patriarchs as well that are thought to be Canaanite tribes. You know, uh, like the Geshurites, for example, or the Machites, yes. and uh, several nations like that. They don't have any patriarchs in in the Bible, and then. For Amalek, you have a patriarch that's out of sequence uh, because he intermarries into the Horim, uh, marrying Timna, who's the daughter of of, of uh, Seir, uh, which goes back to the Hebrew word satir. Um, mm-hmm. And they start a new hybrid race between a female Raphaim and a uh, human from uh, a descendant of Abraham, and you know through Isaac and Jacob. So. I mean, for through through Isaac, sorry, not Jacob. Yeah. Um, and so, right. So, you you you've got uh, these. So I was talking about uh, the Amalekim that show up in in Genesis 14, mm-hmm. but yet in Genesis 36 you get the creation of the nations of the Amalekites. So you've got two different races of Amalekites. One's Raphaim that goes back and and are more uh, that come out of Mesopotamia that move into that land. And then you have the hybrids that are created uh, afterwards. So you have hybrids and giants. And they were called the Shazu by the hybrids were called the Shazu by the Egyptians. And Shazu. Shazu, yes. S-H-A-S- uh, uh, SU. Um, so, and I walked through That's all right. of that. So and sort of lay it out for the people because there's just so much more going on there that people have no context for. Well, I got a question for you, Gary. A lot of people would be asking about the original book. Um, based on what you're telling me, would it not be a good idea to read this one and then read the other one for, for context? Yeah, it would would be helpful, um, but I'm trying to write it so that uh, you don't have to. But the, right. because I'm going to be referencing back, and I, and I don't want to be redundant. Yeah, I mean, there are going to be two books you want to read, sort of hand in hand. I think. Well, I've already read the first one, so I'm waiting on the second one now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's um, it. Um, thank you. you, you so, just know it's so, going to be fascinating. Um, I, I will tell people just for Gary's sake, I don't waste my time on books that are not relevant to my research or relevant to things that I am. Uh, these rabbit holes are deep. Um, if you haven't read his first book, I would highly suggest that you do it. Um, there's information in there that is not readily available and it's well-researched. Um, and I don't say that about very many people. <laughs> General will tell you that. Uh, you don't, mate. No, you, uh, oh. You don't spot on. Uh, Thank but, you. Um, Appreciate and, that. Ab- and an absolute. And, and, uh, and, I could swear, Gary, but I won't. I just respect you. Uh, well, <laughs> the uh, last thing I wanted to ask, the last thing I wanted to ask Gary about, um, and and thank you, Gary, for for um, enter- entertaining my questions. Um, what do you think about Agmios and Gog and Magog as far as the giant or the Nephilim bloodlines? Uh, when you say Agios, are you referring to um, Agag? The, or is well, that Agmios, a different bloodline? Agmios is the bloodline that went through the Celts in, in Ireland and Northern okay. Europe, and he's the, ling- he's the linguist. 
he was the one that could speak all the so languages. A that, okay, he's the linguist. And would you say he's different than Albion? Yeah, Albion. Yeah, um, yeah. Very distinct. Very distinctly different. Um, he's the one that tried to okay. unite the Celtics and the, and uh, the Northerns um, to okay. fight the bloodlines in the South. Um, uh, and now this okay. is Celtic. Uh, this is Celtic mythology. Yeah. This is very interesting, yeah. mate. I love yes, it. I, I'll, I love have, it. I'll have to. I'll have to I'll have to dig a little bit deeper on him, but with uh, Gog and Magog, um, I mean they show up biblically as uh, as names in the Bible. Magog is you know in um, the descendants of Japheth, and this is after the flood. But Gog yes. doesn't come in the table of nations, but he shows up in the Ezekiel War, you know, thirty-eight and thirty-nine. Gog of Magog, chief prince of Meshech. Yep. And Gog, and what happens after the flood, both in with the the peoples of Noah and other gi and giants, is is that they're going to take names of giants after the flood. Um, before the flood, you have a god named Iapetus, and he creates a lot of giants. Um, two of them are Gog and Magog. So it's interesting that we have a Gog name that's in prophecy that's related to Magog of antediluvian giants. So maybe they survived the flood or um, there's other giants that show up after the flood because in England mythology and Celtic mythology, you get, you know, several waves of giant nations coming over, but Albion, Gog and Magog are very important in that sort of history. And so it's not clear to me whether or not those are survivors or new giants that are created after the flood, but they have a fairly large role. And where Albion comes in as an interesting mix is part of the elven bloodline that we talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. They call that the LB gents. Uh, and it's a bloodline that goes back to LB gens, goes back to a specific patriarch. And it's the LB gens of the elven bloodline. And Albia means uh, means basically white or pale, um, and gens means a genealogy back to a particular patriarch. And so again, these giants all had after the flood and before the flood, they basically had pale white skin, whether or not they were the dark-haired ones, the red-haired ones, or the blonde-haired ones. And uh, so it's a it, the, these terms are sort of very, very important to understand how the bloodline families sort of communicate and, and talk within. So I think you're going to see a rise of these names, particularly with Gog and Magog, as it applies to this this war in, in, in the last days. And you're, you're going to have to understand who that alliance is and what does it mean to, to have Gog that's coming back. And I think that this war happens after the uh, opening of the abyss, just before the midpoint of the last seven years. And that Gog is going to be taking some sort of form in this world as 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 a leader and is going to be leading that that war in the end time. So I think just as in Daniel 2, you're getting a mixing of uh, people in in the end time uh, scenario of the, of the empires, you can get that that they're just not going to get along, or you can look at uh, this mixing of iron and 
play as a mixing of two different types of beings. And in the King James Version Bible, it actually has these beast kings that descend out of the beast empires as mixing their seed with humankind. So I kind of connect those dots and say there's either some sort of uh, a recreation of the giants or the original ones are coming back in bodily form that are going to be part of that world government. Got you. Got you. It's, uh, it's crazy, isn't it? It really is. I, I could do another six hours with... with uh... Oh, <laughs> it's just phenomenal. Um, always, always phenomenal, mate. Um... <sighs> <laughs> Gary, oh, we, we, again, we, sincerely, we sincerely appreciate you uh, spending all this time with us. And, yes, uh, for sure we do, mate. The questions that I picked uh, were questions that I had from six years ago when I was listening to your presentations and things that I've discovered over the <laughs> last few years that I thought people would yep. need to, to, to have the connections in there, you know. But this Gog yep, and Magog exactly. thing, this Gog and yeah. Magog thing, a lot of people look at it and they're like, well, I, and I'm like you, I think it could either be that it's going to be a return in some form or it's going to be a uh, occupation of, of, a, of a, a person. Um, but you know, they said the, the bloodlines will be yep. mixed again and the giants will, will return. Yeah. Um, now does that mean they're yep. going to come out of the earth or out of the abyss or, you know, fall from the sky like they were described a few times? Um, yeah, uh, we'll have to wait and see. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the Chinese, the, or, or, the, Chi the Chinese curse, you or know, all of the above. Live in interesting <laughs> times. Well, yeah, yeah, true. All of the, true. Yeah. All of the above. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> Oh. This has been fantastic. I appreciate oh, it very much. Yes, mate. Yes, uh, Gary, you you you're a legend, mate. Uh, <laughs> well, well, thank you, thank you for oh, having boy. me on. It's appreciated. Yeah, yeah. Um, Gary, uh, before you go, mate, would you like to tell everybody where they can get hold of you, again, please, mate? Yeah, the best way to get a hold of me is through my website at the Genesis6Conspiracy.com. That's Genesis6 with the number 6Conspiracy.com. And on that website, you'll see a contact the author. And if you want a document on something that I might have been talking about today, um, you know, for example, we were talking about, uh, you know, Gog and Magog. I have documents on that. Um, brilliant, brilliant. And uh, I'll send, I, I provide those at no charge if you want to ask me a question. Wait, you might take me two or three weeks to get back to you, but I will get back to you. And you can get a hold of me on Facebook under Gary Wayne, uh, either on my timeline or at Messenger. You can message me, and I'm trying to do a better job of looking what's in the filter bin these days, so I'm not leaving those messages <laughs> for too long. But I will get, I will get back to you. Brilliant, Gary. Uh, Raven, would you like to tell everybody where they can get hold of you, please, mate? Yeah. Same as always, everybody. You can find me at Spreaker, Spreaker.com under uh, No Apologies Enough Said or uh, Raven Kiefer. And I have an extensive playlist that includes Gary on my uh, YouTube play, uh, playlists. Brilliant. Um, and while I'm doing this, folks, Gary has a lot of stuff out there from interviews and stuff like that on bit shooting on YouTube. If you want more information, since he's trying to write a book, contact him, but, but there's a lot of interviews that he's done and a lot of presentations that he's done that are, that, that's openly available. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh incredible always go you are um incredible <laughs> you are the person that we, we need um, 
Uh, I'm looking forward to this next book. Um, can you tell everybody yeah. what the title is going to be? Yeah, I think it's going to be Genesis Six Conspiracy Part Two: Prehistory and Prophecy. That's the They're brilliant. That's brilliant. the there we go. yeah, and I'll have I'll ha and I'll have it available on the same website. So I'm trying to brand it the same way, but we'll see what the publisher has to say. Brilliant. Yeah, that, brilliant. Right then, gentlemen. Um, <laughs> blow my mind, Gary, again. <laughs> um, thank you very much. Um, right, I'm going to stop recording now. I'm going to stop recording.